following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people, and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer, and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's, directions, or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Our first reading this morning is taken from Psalm 22, starting at verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. And our second reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all of the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, it's great to be with you and uh, great to be here in church, great to be joining you online wherever you are. Uh, Let's just start with a word of prayer, shall we? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you continue to speak to your church today. Lord, we pray that you would, as we sang earlier, open the eyes of our hearts and with them our minds that we might be graced with your truth, but also a passion to live out your gospel in the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's just over a week since the Church of England released the report from Lament to Action, the report from the Anti-Racism task force. Noting years of fine words but little action, the report issues a clarion call for concrete steps across the whole of church life to tackle the sin of racism, together with a commission to address challenging but vital theological issues and questions. Here at St. Nick's, we are so thankful for the extraordinary contribution made by our vicar Aaron in co-chairing this task force. We have been holding him in our prayers and we will continue to do so. Receiving the report, the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, talked about addressing the sin of racism as a gospel issue. He said, it is the theological vision of our belonging to one another in Christ that drives our mission. That, he said, is why this is a gospel issue. Now, the passage which we have just heard together from Acts invites us to explore that challenge for ourselves and to apply it not only to the sin of racism but to every barrier which threatens to divide us. As Aaron said, the lectionary for the last few weeks since Easter has been introducing us to some stories from the book of Acts which narrate the new beginnings of the church's life. The spread of the gospel from its geographical genesis in Jerusalem to the wider Gentile world. Last week, Claire helped us listen in on Peter's bold sermon to the Sanhedrin, proclaiming the faith at the heart of the religious establishment. And today's passage brings us face to face to one of the oddities of the, books of, Act, of the book of Acts. You see, it's a book, Acts, that narrates the, the big events, the major events of the early church's life. The, the martyrdom of Stephen, the conversion of Saul, the council of Jerusalem, the missionary journeys, Paul's arrival in Rome. And yet, dotted within this grand narrative are some apparently insignificant little stories, little vignettes of faith involving bit part players who pop up and then disappear from sight. Today's passage of Philip and the Ethiopian official is just one of those passages. These two figures don't get much airtime anywhere else. And so one has to ask why Luke, the writer of Acts, kind of used valuable papyrus to record their story. One answer, I think, is that Luke wants to record Philip's highly effective personal evangelism. 
Uh, just as Paul in Athens in Acts 17 is a fine example of public apologetics and proclamation, so it's been rightly argued by commentators such as Ajit Fernando that this passage has all the elements of effective one-to-one -one evangelism. Spirit-led, faith-filled, Bible-based, Christ-centered, decision-orientated, sacramentally confirmed, it's all there. And I want to affirm all those insights. If you're looking for wisdom in how to share your faith with your colleagues and your friends, you can do far worse than go here. But I think Luke has other things that he wants to show us in this story. I think that in the two characters that he puts before us, and the way that they come to engage, he wants us to recognize something not only about what the gospel is, but what the gospel does. I think if we really enter into their story and the reality of their meeting, we'll see that for ourselves as well. So, let's meet the two characters, shall we? On the one hand, we have Philip. Now, just to be clear, this is not the same Philip as the Philip mentioned in the Gospels. Okay, I'm sure that was a bit of a downer as Luke was writing the Gospel, he had to kind of delineate it, but it's not the same Philip. The Philip in today's story has been introduced in Acts chapter 6 as one of the Greek-speaking Jews based in Jerusalem who were appointed as deacons to look after the welfare of the Greek-speaking widows who had complained about being overlooked in the daily distribution of food by the church. So in one sense, Philip is an insider. He's a leader from within the Jewish community in Jerusalem who'd recognized Jesus as Messiah. Uh, but in one sense, he was an outsider because the Greek-speaking Jewish community, early Christian community, included people who'd moved from Jerusalem from elsewhere, seems to have felt a little bit excluded and perhaps lesser than the Hebrew-speaking uh, early Messianic believers. Uh, and perhaps it was this sense of seeing exclusion himself that led Philip to share the gospel beyond the boundaries that existed in that day. What we do know is that after the persecution that followed Stephen's martyrdom, Philip pops up in Samaria, north of Jerusalem, and preached the gospel of Christ among the Samaritans, near neighbors, but widely despised by the Jewish community. So, so Philip is not only a servant-hearted deacon, but an effective evangelist. Okay, so that's Philip. Then we have the man that Philip meets. Luke tells us that this man is from Ethiopia, which our footnotes tell us is from the Upper Nile region, probably more akin to Sudan today. We learn that he's a eunuch. And we reflect that it was not uncommon for men destined for service in the royal court to be castrated so that they would not be seen as a threat to the people among whom they served. Certainly, Luke tells us he had a very senior role, sort of akin to Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, within the royal court, uh, to the queen who, who ruled the area, apparently, on a day-to-day basis. And finally, Luke tells us his man was a worshipper and had gone to Jerusalem to worship. We can't quite be sure here, but I think this is someone who's drawn to worship Israel's God, but who was not a Jew in any sense of the word. So here we have these two people. I think it's worth capturing just how different they are to each other. They come from different cultures, 
They have different colored skin. While it seems that they spoke Greek, their heart language was probably different. They have different experiences of inclusion and exclusion. The Ethiopian official may have been at the very center of things at home, but when it came to worshiping in Jerusalem, he was on the outside. While Philip, as a circumcised Jew, would have been allowed pretty much right to the center of the temple courts, the Ethiopian man would have been kept far off in the court of the Gentiles, far away from the action. I wonder how that reality felt for him. I wonder if with his different clothes and different skin color, he felt welcomed in Jerusalem or anything but. These men have different uh, experiences of power and status. Philip is literally the one who's waiting on tables. And here he is running to keep up with this grand Ethiopian official sitting in his chariot. Now, riding in a chariot, especially for the hundreds of miles that he was going to do, was incredibly unusual at that time. We could think of the scene as son of someone jogging along uh, alongside a Bentley Continental, you know, with the back windows blacked out. You know, when it comes to power and status, these men are from entirely different worlds. And then they have a different experience of abuse. I think we have to name the fact that the castration that the Ethiopian experienced was unlikely to have been consensual. This was a man who'd been cut without his informed consent. He may have been powerful, but he was a victim of abuse. Two complex men from very different worlds with so much that made their stories so different. The step up between the dusty road and the prestigious chariot was just a sign of all that separated them. And yet, and yet, their stories come together around Jesus Christ as Philip explores the Isaiah 53 passage sitting next to the Ethiopian man at the back of the chariot. Their stories come together around the Jesus who set aside power and status and voluntarily walked the way of suffering at the hands of others, led like a sheep to the slaughter. Around the Jesus who knew humiliation and exclusion, being deprived of justice and executed outside a city wall around the Jesus who endured abuse at the hands of others, whose skin was broken, and yet who endured it voluntarily for the sake of others. Around the Jesus who, as Isaiah 53 points to elsewhere, took on himself the sin of all who had gone astray, whatever their background, whatever their culture, whatever their status, whatever their power, whatever their sin, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was around this Jesus that the stories of Philip and the Ethiopian came together. For me, the most moving and beautiful moment of the whole story is that moment when, having stopped by a pool or river of some sort, they go down into the water together. Here these two men are, so different from divided worlds, 
going down into the water together and coming up together, baptized believers together in Jesus Christ. It's been rightly pointed out that the first convert from outside Judea and Samaria is a black African. And I don't think Luke would want us to forget that. But it's on this picture of unity in Christ where I suggest Luke wants us to linger. Here we have two drenched men. Different clothes, different wealth, different skin color, different languages, but sharing a same faith and baptism in Jesus Christ. This, sisters and brothers, is the beauty of the gospel. Yes, we have a picture of one man saved through the evangelistic efforts of others. But more fundamentally, we have a new humanity taking shape when where boundaries of division are being broken down and a new community being built around the reconciling, forgiving, gracious love of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross. The scholar Tom Wright responding to the accusation that the Church of England had embraced a new gospel of anti-racism, wrote this a few weeks ago. And I quote, All those who believe in Jesus, rescued by his cross and resurrection and enlivened by his spirit, are part of this new family. This was and is central, not peripheral. The church was the original multicultural project with Jesus as its only point of identity. It was known, and was for this reason seen as both attractive and dangerous, as a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group, gender-blind in leadership, generous to the poor, and courageous in speaking up for the voiceless. And dare I say, one of the first steps of that journey took place on the desert road to Gaza, when Philip and the Ethiopian official came up out of the water together. When I think back to my first steps as a Christian over 25 years ago, I remember one of the most amazing things being meeting Christian believers from very different cultures and yet realizing deep down that we were part of this new humanity together. I, I studied German and Russian and, and, and back at university hundreds of years ago, but in the early 90s, therefore, I did quite a bit of traveling behind the former Iron Curtain, which had only just then come down, you know, so in the former Soviet bloc. And I went to churches in Russia and the Czech Republic, for example, and just experienced that connection with people who have been up opposite ends of culture wars, through, through my kind of early formative years. And yet we were sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ with a remarkable connection around him. And then as a new vicar, I got the chance to go to the Third Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in Cape Town and stand with 4,000 people in a huge hall from 197 countries, gloriously different, and wonderfully united in Jesus Christ. I'll never forget looking around that huge auditorium, just awestruck by the joy of praising God with sisters and brothers 
from so many different cultures. So the Christian faith community has, from its first steps, including on this desert road, been called to be a multicultural community which reaches across barriers and brings together around Jesus Christ. So Stephen Cottrell is right. Racism is a gospel issue. When the church behaves in a way that does not live out the gospel and perpetuates barriers and walls of race, then the very gospel is being undermined. And the answer is not to keep talking about the Jesus who unites, but to name the barriers that Jesus wants to overcome and the behavior that Jesus wants us to change. Over the last few years, I've learned a lot about doing that in my role at Cranmer Hall. It has been humbling, but a richer experience of common belonging together in Jesus Christ has been the result. And it's not only racism we need to name here, but all other sin that puts up barriers centered on gender or class or money or sexual orientation or age. So, where's the invitation and the challenge for us today? First, I want to speak to you if your experience is of feeling excluded from the good news of Jesus Christ, either because of the behavior of others or because of something you carry in yourself. When the church has been part of that exclusion, I am sorry. But I want you to hear this. There are no walls between you and Jesus. Nothing in you or your experience is a wall to coming to Jesus. Come as you are. Come as who you are. And know there is a life-changing welcome for you. And if you've come to Jesus before, but you've built up walls in your mind, I haven't prayed enough this last year. I can't even sing praises. There are secrets about me that nobody else knows. These are not walls for Jesus. Second, I want to join you to join me in asking, what boundary are you being invited to walk across in the name of Jesus? Perhaps it's a barrier in your family, or your road, or your work, or your school, or your college, or your church. Where is it? It might be simply saying to someone, how are you? How's your day going? And then really listening to the answer. I wonder, just as the Spirit led Philip that day, I wonder where the Spirit is leading you to act. At the end of the story, the two men go their own way. Philip buzzes off as miraculously as he arrived, to do some more evangelistic work, and the Ethiopian official goes on his way rejoicing. But in one sense, they're not separated. Going in different directions, to be sure, but they are part of a common new humanity in Jesus Christ. May we thank God for that new humanity, and may we do all in our power 
and by the power of the Holy Spirit to live, that, to live out that new humanity to a watching, hurting world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.